0: church. Merry Christmas. Let's give those kids a nice warm thank you again. Way to go. Awesome. Hard to beat singing children at Christmas. It's all good. Thanks for bringing your Bibles with you this morning. We're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke today. Last week, you'll remember that we rehearsed this supernatural moment, these obstetrics that came from heaven enabling Zacharias and Elizabeth to conceive and then bear John Baptist into the world and today we'll pick up the story with Gabriel now going to Mary, the mother of Jesus, to announce his coming and so we have much to learn from this wonderful woman, this Mary, the mother of God, and I hope that it will be a blessing to you. So Luke chapter 1, I'll begin reading at verse 26, we'll go to 38, let me invite you to stand as you're able to hear this important story. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. May God inspire us today through this powerful story. You may be seated. Thanks. Well, it was the day after Thanksgiving. Shoppers flooded the malls. 10 year old boy, we'll call him John, accompanying his father to Sears, passed a red bike on the way to the tool department, and from that moment could think of nothing else but that bike. It captured his imagination and made his wheels back home, that old bike of his, look worn and out of date. But how to persuade his father? That was the question. John considered his desire and then came up with a plan. Uh, timing was everything, parents must be approached while they're in a good mood so sit up straight at the table hold your fork properly don't smack your lips John was working hard for those 24 hours of the next day finally that following afternoon came the moment they were cleaning the garage he and his father And John's old bike was there in full view paint all scratched, no fancy gears to shift pretty pathetic dad said John mustering up his courage you know the red bike we saw yesterday the, the one with all the gears and the knobby tires Do you think Santa might stop by Sears and drop it down the old chimney this year? Sure would be a great surprise. His dad stopped what he was doing, gave a long look at John, cleared his throat, and said those words that always meant bad news was coming. When he said, young man, have you checked your report card lately? And have you changed your behavior toward your sister? We need to see some improvements in your character before we talk to Santa. John hung his head, guilty on both counts, how he hated the word character when it came from either of his parents. The words of the Christmas song rang in his mind. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. John knew that that song was nothing but a cruel scheme to manipulate children into good behavior in the weeks before Christmas. John was not happy with his failure, but neither was he through with his efforts to get that bike. One last resort came to mind, and that was prayer he would go over his parents' head to a higher authority. Maybe that would work. That night on his knees, he prayed earnestly. Oh, Lord, if you'll only give me that bike. I promise to study every night and make good grades. He heard himself pray that prayer, and he thought, that's not realistic. (laughs) I can't do that. So he prayed a second time. Lord, if you'll only let me get the bike, I'll stop picking on my sister for a whole year. Then he heard himself say that. His conscience came to him him and he said, that's not possible either. I can't possibly behave that well. And so he realized he's never going to get that bike. But then a gleam came into his eyes because he had an idea. He got up from his knees, put on socks to dampen the sound, crept downstairs, saw his parents in the den, snuck into the living room, picked up a character from the manger scene quietly opened a drawer in the kitchen for a roll of tape then scooted back upstairs where he grabbed a towel from the bathroom, locked his door. The figurine from the manger scene was rolled in the towel and then secured with duct tape and hidden under the bed. Then John went back to his prayers and only this time with new confidence and he prayed, Lord about that bike. If you ever want to see your mother again... (laughs) now listen there are a lot of things that john got wrong (laughs) That gifts are only a reward for good behavior and that god can be coerced with threats that's not that's not actually true but one thing he got right was the importance of mary yeah the mother of jesus remove her the story of salvation just isn't the same someone is missing from the manger scene And if Roman Catholics have made too much of her, then surely the sin of us Protestants is the equal and opposite error of neglect. But if, as the church teaches, she is the mother of the one who both fully became God and fully human, two natures in one person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then she is, to use the technical term, the God-bearer, theotokos from the Greek, the one who has bore into the world God himself an amazing thing, she gave birth to the one who is God incarnate, God in flesh, and while we do not worship her, she's a sinner just like us and in need of forgiveness from the one she bore, and while we do not go to her for favors in prayer, uh, somehow as if Jesus, her son, is not immediately available to us, too transcendent, too far from us to pray to him, we need an intermediary, we don't believe that and we do not believe that she was immaculately conceived without sin or that she was translated to heaven at her death, as, uh, as Roman Catholic dogma teaches. We do believe, though, that she should be blessed, and we honor her, and we marvel at her. We marvel at her privilege as the chosen one to carry and bear the Son of God, the grace of that election. We praise her as a way of praising God both for the work in her and her faith in God. She models for us what authentic faith looks like. She is then our elder sister in the faith and a powerful model of the interaction with the unseen world. Remember, she, she had visions and she experienced angels and Pentecost of the Holy Spirit. She is a great example for us in what it means to walk with God in an authentic way. Luke, in his gospel, takes Mary very seriously, and we want to take her very seriously as we consider this text today. Now, as I mentioned last week, we uh, rehearsed the visitation of Gabriel to Zachariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John Baptist, and now there is another visitation from this angel Gabriel. Now, here's what we are beginning to learn about this Christmas story, this incarnation event. And that is, from the very start, we must acknowledge that it is overtly supernatural in its nature. Miracles are happening here. Supernatural events are now infiltrating into real people's lives in a real natural world that cannot be explained except God is up to something. And it's supernatural. Uh, Behind Luke's story is a religious worldview which believes that the living God may break through and surprise any of us at any moment because life is always lived very closely, in the worldview of believers, very closely with the spiritual unseen world. Let me try to explain. There is a visible world in which we live. It's the one we're most familiar with. It is a physical world, a natural world. It's the world uh, where we live within our natural bodies, in a three-dimensional world and we interact with this world through our five senses and so it is natural it is visible it is physical and it's it's here but in in the Christian worldview there is also an unseen world that is spiritual in nature and it and it is equally as real and parallels the natural world and so these two worlds are together there is both what we can see and there is also what we cannot see. So that ultimate reality actually incorporates both of these realities. And, and what, we, what we learn about the natural world is that there are limitations in the natural world. For example, in our earth suits, in the physical body, we can't, we can't simply move into the unseen spiritual world. I mean, we can't just pop our head through and look around and say, oh, that's what I haven't been able to see. We're not able to do that. We don't have the capacity for that in our physical bodies. So while physical world, natural world, visible world cannot penetrate the spiritual world, vice versa is actually true. The spiritual world can penetrate the natural world. So that human beings, like us, can actually be indwelt by the spirit of Almighty God. The Bible actually teaches this the Apostle Paul said don't you know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit that the Spirit of God indwells us and so and so so spirit can penetrate flesh anytime it wants we are we though the natural world is completely porous to the activity of God in our lives what that means is that there's all kinds of potential an opportunity, and even an expectation that supernatural things will happen, that miracles will actually happen, that 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 it, that it can take place. Now, if if you're a person who does not believe, you're a secular person, you're a skeptical person, you don't do not believe that indeed a modern uh, person can actually uh, experience any kind of reality except that which can be seen in the natural world and measured. Therefore, then this story of the incarnation, this will come across to you as a pious myth or a pleasant fairy tale, something that is symbolic and not primarily substantial, not real, not concrete. Didn't really happen the way it's described. But for those of us in the believing church across history, our worldview provides this story with a whole different perspective. We have had so many ongoing experiences of divine intrusion into our lives because our lives are porous to God's work and his spirit we have had so many answered prayers that it makes us skeptical of modern skepticism are you all right with that I, I can speak for myself I am a skeptic when it comes to modern skepticism because I have seen things and experienced things and given witness to the work of God through answered prayer and divine encounter and manifestations of His Spirit. When Spirit was penetrating into my world and into my life and into my friends' lives and into the life of the church, I have seen God do so many things that I could not explain in any natural way <laughs> that I'm skeptical of your skepticism. I, I, I have no faith in modern disbelief. <laughs> None whatsoever. We, we accept, those of us who, who are Christian in our worldview, we believe what secular science tell us about what they've discovered. But listen, we do not limit ourselves to their philosophical limits because we believe and experience this world not as a self-contained, not as a self-explanatory closed system, but an environment that is continually open to the work of God. So, we let science tell us what is, but we don't let them tell us what isn't, because their tools are not appropriate for invisible reality. By definition, you cannot inspect God or put God under a microscope, because our world is porous to God. And so while we recognize that there are natural realities and natural laws and natural predictabilities that does not limit the idea that God can and will and does on a regular basis break into our world and create things that the natural world can't explain. This is called a miracle. And if you're skeptical of those miracles, I just, just hear me say I'm skeptical of your skepticism because I've seen God do miracles. If I describe them to you, you'd say, well, you're, he's just crazy. He's, he's lost his mind. He's out of touch with reality. Actually, maybe it is that I'm in touch with ultimate reality because I am, I am fully aware and open to the unseen world as much as I am the natural, physical world. I preached a funeral this week, and I made this statement. Heaven is real, and real people go there. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, when I, when I die, my heart stops beating. I will be absent from my body, jettison the earth suit, and present with the Lord. Yeah, yeah. See, here's what we know. These parallel realities of physical and spiritual are very, very close together. Very, very close. So what that means is is God is very close to you. He's very close. Angels, the messengers of God, are very, very close to you. Your departed loved ones, who are now absent from their body, present with the Lord, they are very close. They're, they're very, very close. See, when, when Gabriel silent, finally presents himself to Mary, he doesn't have to make a long trip. God says, okay, go annunciate now to Mary her future. And, you know, Gabriel has to get in some kind of mode where he's got to travel some distance from heaven. Listen, it's just right right there. It's right, it's right here. So all Gabriel has to do is uncloak himself. He's invisible because of the spiritual realm in which he lives. He just uncloaks. And Mary goes, dang, there's an angel. Uh Uh-huh. So Mary's worldview, her religious teaching, has prepared her for this visitation. Think about it. Mary had heard such stories read, discussed in the synagogue, in the village. They were part of her religious heritage. And now they're about to become part of her real-life experience. So for her, an angel visitation is in perfect keeping with her worldview because she's heard about angels her whole life. She's she's heard the stories told about them, the stories from the Scripture and in the synagogue. So she knows. And by the way, this is why we want to teach our children the importance of belief in God and a belief that God can intervene and intersect their lives at any moment, that there is a God in heaven who knows them and can intervene in their lives. That's what it's about. So let's just unpack these verses and and see what we might learn here. First, we have Joseph and Mary and the angel sent. Verses 26 and 27, note the precision here, the specificity. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, now we have Gabriel sent to a specific region, Galilee, specific place, Nazareth, specific young woman, Mary, specific bodily status, she's a virgin. She's in between two specific stages of Jewish marriage, there's first the betrothal and then the marriage. Betrothal usually lasts about a year so that everyone's family agrees this girl's going to marry this boy and they are betrothed. So th- there is legal title, there's inheritance, there's a legal name, but they haven't taken up room and board yet. She's still living with her father. And so they're in this betrothal period. The specific man Joseph of a specific Jewish lineage of the house of David, God's timing is highly specific. She's legally Joseph's wife, and she's waiting then for the consummation of that marriage. In terms of power and prestige, we all know her story. She is at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder in a culture that valued men and age and wealth. She is female and young and poor. Her life is well scripted. She knows exactly what is going to become of her. She will will finally wed this Joseph. She will bear his children She will live in the village. She will probably, on maybe one or two occasions in her life, venture out of the village of 200 people to go to Jerusalem for one of the festivals. She will do her duty. She will worship God and go to the synagogue and try to keep the laws. She will submit to her husband in every appropriate way. And she will live her life and probably die just like most women did in first century Palestine sometime between the age of 35 and 40. She will die either in childbirth or by an infectious disease or by an injury that she's incurred. And she'll be dead by 35. That's her world. It's a very, very small world. Very confined world. Very low expectations. It's like living your whole life in a closet. And there she is, and that's her world. But God now breaks into that and says to her, you are highly favored. You are unique. That world that you expected to live in and that life you expected to live, that is now going to be radically changed. You thought that you might have some influence on your own family, your own children, and sometime in the next 15 years you will die. But instead now the intervention of God has said to Mary, your world now having been lived in this very small cloistered environment is now going to be expanded to the whole world. In fact, everyone who has ever lived is going to know you and your life is going to influence them through the son you will bear. Now this this is an important reality, friends. Listen, every human being is a candidate for profound religious experience. Every one of us. It is in the church and in its traditions and teachings that we learn that it's possible so that we may expect and welcome God's intervention in our lives. When, when God's grace and peace and assurance, we have an epiphany, we have a revelation, we have a theophany, we have a breakthrough, there's a miracle that happens, church history and the Bible itself reminds us that this is God's intentions for all of us. He wants to intervene in your life. He wants to invade your life. He wants to come into your experience. God is a God of breakthrough, of interruptions, of interventions, of communion with his saints. So he has made us for intimacy with himself. Let me ask you this question. When did you last have a life-changing encounter with God? When did you last have a life-changing encounter with God? Now, right now, some of you are thinking, well, that's just recently. That's happened to me. Good for you. Maybe there are others of us in the room who are going, well, not sure I I remember when the last time was. Could I just invite you today to raise your expectation? We're in the the season of the mystery of the incarnation or the inbreaking of God into the world. Listen, raise your expectation because God wants you to have an experience with him. The second thing that happens now is the Annunciation by Gabriel. Verses 28 and following. First she saw, and then she heard. He came to her and said, She saw what others couldn't see, heard what others didn't hear. It is a private visit. Now let me just, let me just uh, pick out of this, this text uh, something that might empower women for a moment. Because God is constantly trying to empower women. Again, this culture was a patriarchal culture. It was dominated by men. And here's this woman, she's the lowest thing on the totem pole. And culture would dictate, mandate, that if you want to talk to that single girl, that you have to go through her father to get permission to have this kind of conversation with her or through her betrothed husband, Joseph. But notice, Gabriel doesn't consult either of those boys. He goes directly to her and begins to speak to her directly. Now listen, what we learn is that God needs no one's permission before interacting with any of his human creatures, men or women, black or white, rich or poor, tall or short. God can speak to any of us at any time and doesn't need any other person's permission to do so. Now, that means that God can speak to your spouse or to your child directly, And tell them things, call them to things that are completely contrary to your best idea of plans for your marriage or your family. But God can do anything He wants in that. Now, let me just give you an illustration. I've observed this over the years, and it's kind of unfortunate, but I've noticed it. That I know some men who are angry with God because their wives or their children have experienced a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And they get all upset about that, and I've, I've, I've thought, why, why are you angry about that? And one of my suspicions is that it's because there is now a part of their wife or their child that is no longer under their control. They are no longer on the throne of their petty little world. God has messed up the whole, the whole scene. None of us own or control the soul of another person if you try to engulf another person You'll have to deal with God. Let me just remind you what the marriage vow says. It says to have and to hold, not to own and control. All right, let's move off of that now. Verse 28. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Gabriel has brought with him the experience of God's presence. Now, God is always with us, right? He is omnipresent. God is everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent. He's close. He's close to us all the time, but occasionally, He reaches through. And the experience we have of God is more poignant. And that's what's happened here. The atmosphere has changed. Perception is altered. The divine rheostat goes up. God's presence becomes existential. It's, It's real. And with God's presence comes God's grace and His favor and His blessing. And Mary's response is a great model for us because her first response, as is often the response in the presence of a big-shot angel, an archangel like this, is to get a little unnerved by it. And she's troubled, and this is what we read, but she was greatly troubled at this saying. So we see Mary emoting. There's an affect to her. She's experiencing God at an emotional level, maybe even a physical level. she's, 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 She's touched by this moment. By this experience. And her response is also intellectual. And she considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. So her heart and her head are both involved. Can we learn something about worship? Can we learn something about about how to interact with God, how to be, be a full person, a complete person, a whole person spiritually by this model? Those who want to be wise and discerning in these kinds of matters. Should not be surprised at the depth and power of the emotional reaction God's presence stirs, and neither we should should we be de- de- surprised at the difficult intellectual questions it sometimes raises. I don't know about you, but I've had experiences where God's presence was tangible, and he, you know, it's like He's just He's broken through in an unusual way, and I'm experiencing Him, and I and I would say that I, emotionally I was affected by it, troubled by it, stirred by it. Uh, amazed by it, overwhelmed by it, euphoric by it, in the presence of God, emotionally and even physically moved by it. But we are more than emotion and body, right? We are also mind and spirit. And, And so there have been times in my life when God has done something that my emotions experienced and my body felt that my mind couldn't comprehend. So why is that happening? What does that mean? How can I get context, intellectual context around that? And, it, and so it confused me. Mary had a similar experience. She goes, whoa, an archangel. And then the angel says, here's what's going to happen to you. And she goes, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm struggling with that. So the healthy, the healthy Christian, watch, the healthy church is one that makes room for both heart and, and, and emotion, doesn't set them over against each other, in this case, it was ecstatic joy and intellectual befuddlement. So both her heart and head are involved. For a church to exalt emotion and downgrade thinking, that's wrong and dangerous. And there are Christians like this. Well, if you don't feel it, then it's not real. And no, slow down, sweetie. You know, if I'm not feeling something, then you know, the, you know, that, this experience is just isn't worth anything no, 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 it's not that. And then there are other cultures that say, look, it's all about my intellectual comprehension of God, and so it's about, it's about uh, how contemplative we can become and how precise we can, we can, we can build the liturgy and, and, and make the thoughts toward God as lofty as we can pr- possibly comprehend. This is the only meaningful way to worship or to experience God. And you say, well, that's a beautiful, meaningful way to experience God, but it's not the only way. Because you're, you're more than just intellect. And so do you see the balance? And do you see the wholeness? So, so for a church to exalt the rational and despise the affective is equally wrong. Yeah. So God wants to interact with the whole of the person. And here is Mary. Sight and hearing, mind and emotion, historical precedent, individual encounter are all here and all held together. And as we continue through this text, we find Mary, who knows her way around the birds and the bees, she knows what it, what it takes to make a baby. And so she asks, asks a practical question. She says, how can this be? I am a virgin. How can this be? I know not a man. And could we, could we disagree? Mary asked a really good question. That's a great question. And Gabriel gave a surprising answer. Now, if you, if you didn't, hadn't read the text, if we hadn't already read it this morning, if you didn't know the story, then imagine hearing this for the first time. <laughs> But wait a minute, how can I have a baby if, I, if I've never had relations? How's that possible? I mean, that's a really fine question. How are you going to do that? And this may be the first fully Trinitarian moment in Scripture where we see the Trinity, this the complexity and unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now portrayed in Gabriel's answer. And he said, the Father will send the Son who will become incarnate in your womb by the overshadowing and creative power of the Holy Spirit. And we see it unfolding. Jesus can only be adequately accounted for as a creative act of God. He is a prophet and a teacher, but he's also more. The confession of the classic Christian faith, and this comes out of the Chalcedonian definition. This is historic doctrinal theology. This is, this is kind of a deep subject. The confession of the classic Christian faith is that he is God incarnate. The word, the second person of the Godhead, become flesh without ceasing to be God. So that in his one person are two complete natures, divine and human. Joined without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. Now, to summarize what that actually means after expressing that in theological terms... Since he is God, that means he can save us. Good news. He's God, he can save us. And since only God can save, that's a good thing. And since he is also fully human, he can save us since we are human beings. So God can only save and only a person who identifies and understands us as fully human a human person can save us. So in the person of Jesus Christ is the bridge. He is the way back to God and there is no other. There's no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved. This week I was talking with a significant leader in our denomination. He told me this story. He said he was recently meeting with a group of lay leaders in a local church, Methodist church, and they said to him, our pastor is about to retire, and when he leaves the new pastor that we would like to have assigned, we don't wish them to ever use the J word again. We want a pastor who will not use the J word You do know we've gone insane. We've gone insane. It's crazy time. It's crazy time in the culture, crazy time in parts of the church. It's crazy time. We don't want anyone using the name of Jesus. Let me just clear this up here at Union Chapel. We like Jesus in the morning, Jesus at noontime and Jesus at supper time we we believe that Jesus is the pre-existent co-eternal word of God that Jesus is someone who should be known someone that we should grow in a relationship with and someone whom we should take to others who are yet to know him Jesus is the reason that we exist we love Jesus, we follow Jesus, we serve Jesus, we submit to Jesus, we acknowledge Jesus, we give Jesus glory and praise and honor for His work. We love Jesus and we believe that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. You can be a secular skeptic, you can even pretend to be a Christian person in a church somewhere, But if you don't know Jesus, then you don't have the hope you need because Jesus is uniquely and exclusively the chosen vessel through which God has made provision for our salvation. I'm not upset that there aren't a hundred different ways to God. I'm just thankful that God has made a way and that way has given us hope and his name is Jesus, the only son of God. Yes, sir. Well, I needed to get that off my chest. I think I did it. Now, remember, Jesus didn't show up full grown. He arrived as a baby. And so he went through all of the developmental stages that a human being goes through. We get that, right? That was—he was first an implanted embryo, and then a developing fetus—says something to us, something powerful to us about the continuity of human personhood across the whole of the life cycle. I mean, mean, there is value all the way through. Now, I want to put a statement up on the screen because I want—I want to just bring this home and let it soak in. The unborn are not potential persons, but are persons with potential. It's a very important distinction. Last week we learned when Gabriel announced to Zachariah and Elizabeth, before they conceived, before they conceived, Gabriel said to them, You will conceive, you will have a son, you name him John, he's going to be a prophet, and he's going, to, he's going to turn the hearts of many back to righteousness. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. God's going to use him to bring revival to the nation, and he will be the precursor prophet to the to the coming of Messiah, Emmanuel. And so here is not only value in a person who is pre-born, but now we have a sense of call. God has a divine purpose for his life before he's even conceived. And then the angel said to him, and by the way, while that, while that baby is in utero, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. So before he's conceived, he has, he has a mission. He has a mandate. And after he's conceived, while still pre-born, the Spirit of God now is, is coming upon him to prepare him and equip him for his work. Now the, the angel is saying to Mary, same thing with you, girl. You are, gonna, you are going to conceive by the Holy Spirit and bear a son, and he's going to be extra special. Now what we learn about this is that people who are preborn are real people. This isn't potential person. This is a real person. Now, in the natural, physical world, the best we can do is life begins at conception. Okay, well, I can grab onto that. But the fact is, your life began eons ago. You were in the mind of God before there was time. You existed in the mind of God way before you were even conceived. God has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. He has a destiny for you. You are unique and special and and filled with enormous potential in God's best plan. But the point is that life begins way before we imagine. The Catholics are profoundly right, I think, on this one. And it shows in their hospitals with the care they give to women and children. This is perhaps the grand ethical legacy of their devotion to Mary. Uh, This is one of the things that makes convenience abortion such a monstrous crime. And why the very judgment of God hangs over our nation because of it. Women who suffer and men who pay the bills. Mary's was a problem pregnancy. Hers was a crisis pregnancy. And Mary's willingness to bring forth life ought to be held in our culture with high esteem, especially in a culture that's so high on promiscuity and violence. I will never forget the occasion a handful of years ago when Mother Teresa of Calcutta was invited to be the keynote address for the National Day of Prayer. National prayer breakfast there during the Clinton White House. And here's Mother Teresa. You can check this out on YouTube. It's it's just so poignant. The Clintons, Bill and Hillary are on the front row there. and Mother Teresa, you can barely see her over the podium. You know, she's a little shriveled up. She's reading from her manuscript. And at some point in her speech, she raises her eyes and makes eye contact with Bill and Hillary. This is not a political statement. This isn't a value statement about personalities. I'm just telling you what happened. Mother Teresa looks up, makes eye contact with the Clintons, and then says this statement, and I quote, the murder of the unborn through abortion is a sin. If you don't want your unborn, don't abort them. Give them to me. I will care for them. Now, while Mother Teresa maintained eye contact, the Clintons did not, and about mid-sentence, their eyes dropped to the floor. Men who use women for fun without commitment to her well-being in marriage, pay the tab, dispose of the results, all tidy and legal and medical and approved by opinion polls. What a dark secret to live and die with if it is unconfessed and unforgiven. What will you say when you face that child after death? Let me remind you something, friends. To do away with them is not to do away with them. They actually existed before they were conceived in the mind of God, and they will exist forever with God. My wife and I actually raised two sons, but we conceived three children. There was a, there was a, a third that we conceived between our two boys, and we fully expect to meet our daughter one day. Uh-huh. There is no life that is lost to God, never. Never. Never, never, never. Because life is sacred. We are made in the image and likeness of God. We dare not tamper with it. Hmm. And at some point, you will need and perhaps be required when you stand face to face with that child to ask their forgiveness as well. Now, I pushed on that pretty hard, didn't I? Now, let me, let me, just, let me just back off of that just for a minute. Believe me when I tell you there are many, many, many people in our congregation who have experienced abortion at some level. I know it. Many, many people. It's touched most of our lives in some way or another. Now let me remind you of something. There is a wideness in God's mercy. There's a wideness in His love and grace. And this sin, like any sin, when confessed, will be forgiven. The wideness of God's mercy is wide enough for you. The grace that God offers you for this sin or any other sin is sufficient to cover whatever need you have. There is hope because there is forgiveness and healing made available through the wonderful grace and love of God. So don't leave here today feeling condemned or judged or unworthy. Instead, God would have you confess your sins and receive His forgiveness and the beginning of a healing process that will be redemptive and meaningful and eternal. So be encouraged. Finally, we find in our text, Mary's, yes, one more verse, verse 38, She said, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Mary said yes. Mary said yes. I love a portion of a sermon from Barbara Brown Taylor. She sums up this scene in Luke. She writes, on one hand, Mary was just a girl, an immature, frightened girl, had the good sense to believe that an angel told her what seemed like a dream. On the other hand, she was the mother of the Son of God with faith enough to move mountains to sing about the victories of her son as if, he were already at the right hand of the Father instead of a little dollop of cells in her womb. And then she concludes, and this is the statement I want you to hear. She said, when when we allow God to be born in us, there's no telling, no telling at all what will come out. And isn't that right? Mary said, yes, Jesus, you, you may come into my life. And when we say yes to Jesus, come into my life, come into our lives. There's no telling. When Mary Mary said, okay, Jesus, the Messiah, may come into my life, she only had just a little glimpse of the implications of that. But can we just, from historical perspective now, can we step back and say, wow, wow, the implications of her yes. Wow, the importance of her obedience. wow the incredible influence of her life because she said yes to Jesus. Friends, we can follow that example. She models for us what saying yes to Jesus really means. And so you too can say yes to him. And what, what a better opportunity in this Christmas season to invite Jesus afresh and anew into your life. Maybe you're a person who said, you know, I can't remember the last experience, life-changing experience I had with God. Maybe it's time for that. Maybe today is a day when you would open your life afresh and anew to Jesus. Let him in because there's no telling, no telling at all what might come out. So be encouraged today through his word. Amen? All right, let's pray just for a moment. Friends, we will allow the familiar words of this Christmas carol perhaps to carry deeper meaning for us today in prayer. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tiding tell to come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Yes, Lord Jesus, come into our lives afresh and anew, we pray in your name. And the people said, would you stand with us?